halfway through the movie Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne walks into the warden's office. If you've seen this movie, you'll remember this scene because it really is a turning point in the whole movie, I think. Up until that point, the story has been very dark, and it continues to be a very dark story of those men who are there at Shawshank Prison. Andy walks into the warden's office, though, and he puts a record on the record player there and turns on the loudspeaker over the whole facility. And he plays a Mozart piece, The Marriage of Figaro. And these two women sing this duet. And it, the music, if, if you've seen the movie, you remember it just echoes across the whole facility. And these inmates who don't speak the language, most of them have probably never really heard much opera. All of a sudden, everybody just stops and their eyes lift up and their whole attention, it seems, is just for a minute. Well, for a minute, I think Red says it best. He said to this day, I have no idea what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I'd like to think that they were singing about something that was so beautiful it cannot be expressed in words and it makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you those voices soared higher and further than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls dissolve away. For the briefest moment, Red said, Every man in Shawshank felt free. And from then on, the, the movie kind of changes. The story begins to change a little bit. Later on, Andy would tell the other inmates after he's gotten out of solitary confinement, which is where he went for doing that. Uh, he says, that's the beauty of music. They cannot take that from you. Music, obviously is a major part of God's Word. It's, it's a major portion of what... That's it, it, one of the unique things, I believe, about our faith. We as Christians sing. Now, other, other religions have music. Um, some of them chant things you can never understand, just little phrases. But true, biblically robust Christian music as we saw in Deuteronomy and as we'll see in Revelation, takes us, moves us, teaches us, reminds us, instructs us. It is not only a means of grace, it a means of, it's a means of discipleship. And, and that music does that for us. Gavin Ortland says that beautiful music communicates a sense of transcendence and significance. Beautiful music whispers to us, I mean something. I am telling you about something profound, beautiful, and transcendent. So, as we work our way through the book of Revelation, we have heard several songs, and we will hear some more singing as we work our way through the book. Um, and we're in a particular section of Revelation that is, I think, one of the most difficult both to interpret and understand 
the signs and the images and the numbers and the symbolism. Jason, thank you. You did a magnificent job last week leading us through this really, really tough section. Some people had a couple of folks say, "Uh uh-huh, I know why you were gone last week, because you know Revelation 13 was next and you left it to Dr. Engel to, you know, lead us through that. No, that was not that was not the intention. Um, But I'm thankful for the way Jason led us through that passage. This passage begins in chapter 12 with this child, this male child being born. And it ends at the end of chapter 14 with this male child bringing about the holy wrath of God and carrying out the judgment of God. He's born in chapter 12. In chapter 14, he brings about the judgment of God and and the salvation of, of God's people. And so this veil is pulled back for us in Revelation and especially here in this passage. So we see these scenes of fierce, intense spiritual conflict. And we see revealed for us in chapter 13 and also in 14 and some following this this enemy of God and of his people, this fierce satanic opposition and he is fierce and he is strong and he is against Christ and his church but throughout all of this we have the constant assurance that God is sovereign over this ultimately controlling it and this is the basis of our hope the victory of Christ is the reason we have confidence the victory of Christ is the reason we can listen to and respond and obey this call for endurance and not quit and not give up and this this hope that we have, this promise of victory is also, I believe, and, and we will see this in chapter 14, uh, very much should humble us as we begin to see what I think are are difficult, difficult portrayals of God's eternal wrath. It is it is it is an ugly thing to see. Um, but here's what here's what we need to remember. That the one who in chapter 14 comes to judge sinners and those who follow and worship the beast. That one who comes to judge is the one who came to die. So that you can avoid that. So that you don't have to be afraid of that. The one who comes and sheds the blood of his enemies in proportions that we can't fathom. Is the one who came and shed his own blood. So that we could have life. So that we could know forgiveness. It's a gospel picture in, in Revelation chapter 14. And it is two sides of the gospel. It is the bright side of the gospel and it is the dark side. The bright side being the song of the lamb and the picture of the redeemed that we see in the first part of this chapter. The, the dark side of the gospel, if you will, is this promise of, listen to me, a promise of eternal peril, eternal punishment. There's the promise of life and there is the promise of death. And both of those are the gospel. Both of those, as we will see, are reasons for God's people to rejoice. (laughs) Yeah, we will rejoice over both of them. So let's let's take a look at this. I appreciated, Jason, so much of what you did was just give us this picture of this beast and and even before I, I read part of chapter 14, let's just think for a second about the comparisons that we're going to see, okay? Because that there is this amazing contrast between chapter 13 and at least the first part, first portion of chapter 14. 
Bottom line, here's the difference. The beast in chapter 13 comes to deceive. The lamb in chapter 14 comes to deliver. One comes to deceive. One comes to deliver. Now, there's a lot of different applications of that. In chapter 14, this beast is risen up, comes up out of the sea, as we saw, with temporary power and authority. Chapter 14, the lamb stands with eternal power and authority. He has throughout the book of Revelation, and we'll see it continue. In chapter 13, this beast is marveled at from this seemingly mortal wound and the healing that came to him. In chapter 14, the lamb who was slain is standing, risen, and reigning. In chapter 13, the beast is worshipped by followers, by those who worship him. And they sing or, or they proclaim, they may chant, I don't know. Who is like him and who can fight him? Well, that question is answered in chapter 14. It's answered. In chapter 14, the Lamb is worshipped by a great multitude that we heard back in, John, in Revelation 7 was a multitude that no one could number. And they sing this new song, a song of the redeemed that only they can learn. And they will see, all will see, who it is that can defeat the beast. Chapter 13, we hear these proud, blasphemous words from the beast and those who worship him. In chapter 14, we hear these songs of praise. We hear songs of, of, of worship. We hear proclamations of warning and the promise that it will be carried out. In chapter 13, the beast is allowed to make war on the saints and to kill those who stand with Christ. In chapter 14, those who die in the Lord are blessed and promised rest. In chapter 13... In the face of the dragon's assault, there is a call for endurance and faith. In chapter 14, there's another call for endurance. And that call for endurance is based on the reality of the Lamb's victory. The reality that God will save his people and he will avenge them. So there's this distinction, all right? All throughout chapter 13 and chapter 14, there's this clear distinction. In chapter 13, those who dwell... On the earth, and that remember, that's a phrase, that's a key phrase in the book of Revelation. And those who dwell on the earth are those who are not with the Lamb, those who are not in heaven, those who are followers of the beast. There's a distinction between those who are there with him and those who are here. And those who dwell on the earth are those who are not a part of God's people. And so in chapter 13, those who dwell on the earth, those who have been deceived by the beast, as Jason said last week, there's this great equalizer, great and small, rich and poor, slave and free. They have all given in. They have all responded to the, the overtures of the beast, the lies of the beast. And they align themselves with him and they carry this mysterious sign this mark of the beast, 666. And I believe Jason is exactly right. It's, he and I talked about this. This is the position that I hold. Whatever you may feel about what that number represents, here's what it represents. It represents never being able to attain to the righteousness, the holiness, the standard, the very character of Christ. It's not 777, which is a number of perfection. 666 falls short. 
falls short for all of eternity. And it doesn't matter how close you are. If you're not in Christ, you're not there. All right. So it reminded me this week as I was studying this and thinking about it of what the psalmist said in Psalm 115, verse 8. Talking about idolaters, those who make them become like them. You become like that which you worship. If it's the beast, the dragon, and their lies, that's what you become like. If you belong to Jesus or redeemed by him and belong to him and walk with him, you, you become like him. That's the process of sanctification. That's what our faith is all about. So in chapter 13, those who dwell on the earth and follow the beast are characterized and marked like him. In chapter 14, those who have been redeemed by the Lamb, we sang part of that this morning. Not only is our name written on his heart, but his name is written on us, right? We are his. And so in chapter 14, those who are redeemed by the Lamb have his name on us in this way that we are marked, we are set aside. And listen, we were set aside before the foundation of the world, it says in chapter 13. And we belong to him. And we bear his characteristics, purity, holiness, and truth. That's the direction we're going to go this morning as we look at this first portion of chapter 14. They stand before him blameless. And, and just as this song in Shawshank just kind of elevated those men and took them out of that dark, drab place for a minute... These songs in Revelation, the song earlier in chapter 7, the song here in chapter 14, the song we'll see in chapter 15. By the work of the Holy Spirit, lift us up. Okay? Lift us up and, and cause us to see and think and, and just perceive something that, that we need badly. Okay? So let's, let's look at the text. Chapter, these chapters, 12, 13, and 14, are, are marked off by a series of signs, John calls them, or revelations, meaning when you see in, in these chapters, back in chapter 12, a great sign appeared in heaven. In, chapter, in verse 3 of chapter 12, another sign appeared in heaven. So these different signs, these different visions are important. They're kind of marking off these chapters for us. They're, they're marking off these sections that we need to pay attention to. The other word that John uses is, and I saw. So there's signs and, and there's sightings, okay? Verse 13, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 13, I saw a beast rising up. Well, that same pattern continues in chapter 14. And it kind of marks off this chapter for us, starting in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, 
for they are blameless. Now, let's continue a little further. Then I saw. So here's another marking off another place where we kind of delineate for a minute. Verse six, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. All right, we're not going to get that far this morning in the sermon, but we'll read that far. All right, just to help us kind of kind of see where we're going. Let's pray. Father, we just ask you to take the words of this text and and Lord, burn them in our heart, even even like a song that we remember from way back. God, so that like Moses and the song he wrote, Father, it could be a song to convict us, a song to remind us, a song to teach us. Lord, a song that you use to um, to just grow us more and more into the very likeness of Christ. Father, thank you that we have something to sing about. And thank you that our Redeemer, um, Lord, um, sings over us now. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us see this song of the redeemed and uh, take it to heart. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this first portion of, of chapter 14, and, and we're going to try to work our way just through these first five verses. Um, the more I worked on this this week, I had I'd outlined this even even before uh, Jason preached last week. And the, and the more I worked on it, the more I realized eh, this, this isn't going to work. You're not you're not going to be able to get all the way from heaven to hell in one sermon. All right. And that's kind of where this chapter takes us. I mean, it just kind of does. Um, but, but we're going to look at the Lamb and His redeemed saints, and specifically the song of salvation. And what I want us to think about this morning is this song of salvation that they sing is also the characteristic of their life. It's, it's the song that they sing is the song that they live. And, and I want us to see that in this, in this passage of Scripture. The, the text begins, then I looked, all right? Again, this marks off this section of Revelation, this particular portion, all right? It's easy for us preachers to kind of outline this portion of Revelation because John's already done it for us. So this is, this is another subheading. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. On Mount Zion is exactly what the psalmist, remember in Psalm chapter 2, this is what he said would happen. 
when God took his king, his servant, and elevated him. It's exactly what God had promised. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and rulers, it says, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what chapter 13 is all about. The Lord, it says, holds them in derision. He who sits in heaven laughs. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill on Mount Zion. So over 150 times, depending on how you're counting, you see Mount Zion referred to in the Old Testament. And it always refers to the place of God's dwelling. The place where God is and often where his people are, his temple or a symbol of his people. It's it's this picture often of this eternal promise that we read about in Deuteronomy of this place. And so this this dwelling place, this Mount Zion, some people see this as a picture of obviously the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Some people see this as a picture of of the church age even now, of God's presence with us, of Jesus tabernacling with us, as it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some people see that. I think it takes us more toward this end time picture. I, I think it takes us to this picture we see in Revelation 21 of a new heaven and a new earth coming down. This place where the, the first earth and the first heaven have passed away. And, I, and John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, where the dwelling place of God is with men. That's this picture of Mount Zion. And the lamb is there. And not only is he there, but he is standing there, as John saw earlier. Remember, back early in the book of Revelation, he is standing in chapter 5 as though he had been slain. He's not down anymore, church, right? He's standing. He's up. He's ruling. He's reigning. And standing with him, he says, are this 144,000. There's that number again. And, And I hold to the view that this is a picture of completeness. It's not limited in the sense that it's just a certain number of a certain people, but it's a picture of perfection. It's a picture of of the full number being there, representing the full number of God's redeemed people. And I'll I'll explain that a little bit more in just a second. It's the same thing we saw in Revelation 7. There was this 144,000, but then later on in the chapter there was what? A multitude that no one could number. And it's this picture of completion of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And, and there they're, they're crying out. Lots of times in the Bible, there's, there's a fine line. It's hard to tell sometimes. Are they crying out and proclaiming or are they singing? Right? I mean, at Christmas time, we, we sing about the angels singing. But it doesn't really say that they sang. It says that they said Glory to God in the highest and on peace. So, okay, well, it's not, not a big deal. It's not a hill to die on. So in chapter 7, they're saying with a loud voice and proclaiming salvation belongs to our God. And this 144,000 that's standing there with the Lamb in Revelation 14 are marked. They are sealed. They are set apart. They bear the name of Christ. They bear the name of his father. And again, this is a contrast. In Revelation 13, those who worship the beast and follow him bear his mark. And I think that mark has more to do with characteristics. 
with being like the one you follow. And so here they bear the name of Christ. They bear the name of the father and it is marked on them. They are written there. And, and I think this is a picture, if you will. This is symbolic of the security that we have. This is a picture that we belong to him. And as Jesus promised, no one will snatch his sheep out of his hand. Right. Imagine that these 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 sheep that are that are marked, if you will, branded, whatever you want to say. And, and it clearly shows who they belong to. Well, the redeemed belong to the one who redeemed them, right? And they are marked by him and they belong to him for all of eternity. They belong to him. And this is a picture of the assurance that we have. Jesus promised back in Revelation chapter three to the one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So here is this picture of Mount Zion, of this heavenly dwelling place, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and this very presence of God. And they're in that as pillars, if you will, established, strong, secure are the very people of God. He goes on in Revelation three to say, never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. Here's the point. There's no one missing in this number, I believe. This is the full assembly. He refers to them as the redeemed. I think that's one of the reasons why I can understand this. And I think it's okay to understand this as a picture of the full number of God's redeemed. He doesn't redeem part and and parcel. No, he redeems them all. And so they stand before him full and complete. And, And no one is missing. And it's on him, the one who is standing, that we stand, right? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. There's a contrast even in that church. The beast is standing on what at the beginning of chapter 13? Sand. Sand. Don't, don't build a house on the beach. Don't build a house on the sand. It'll fall eventually. And this is temporary, this thing that rises up out of the sand. Not this one who stands on the rock, right? No. It's, this is a picture of security. Listen to what they're singing. Listen to what's going on in verse 2. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. Uh, and the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. King James translates that, harpers harping on their harps. All right? Just in case you're going to miss the emphasis. All right? Now, how many harps does it take to be as loud as thunder? I don't know. I don't know. A bunch, I think. I, I think a bunch. But that's the picture. So, so what we have here is this sound coming out of heaven that's just overwhelming. It's loud, but it's sweet. It's thunderous, but it's melodious, okay? The sound is booming. It seems, but it's beautiful to the ears. And again, I just think back on chapter 13, these loud, proud, blasphemous words that are coming are being drowned out by this sound of praise and worship, by this thunderous, melodious sound that's coming. And the sound is this song. Verse three says they were singing a new song before the throne. And before the four living creatures and before the elders, those four living creatures representing, I believe, the, the, all of the residents of heaven and those elders representative of the church. I think that's what that represents. And it says, though, they're singing this song. And notice, it is a new song and it is an exclusive song. All right. 
There's only a certain person or persons who learn this song. It's the song of the redeemed. It's an exclusive song. Now, in chapter five, those who gathered there sang a new song. It was a song that I think reminds us of our victory over sin, of the blood that was shed to accomplish our freedom from sin. And the song that they sang in chapter five said, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So that new song there in chapter five is like most beautiful music. It's a new song that never gets old. You can just keep on singing it. And every time you sing it, it blesses you in a different way. So they're singing that song about the victory over sin in chapter five. Now, in chapter 17, we will see them sing a song. Excuse me. In chapter 15, we will sing, see them sing a song. And this time they will sing about the defeat of the beast. It's a song about victory. In chapter 15, verse 2, it says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. Saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. The nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts are revealed. That's the song they sing in chapter 15. Here in chapter 14, they're singing a new song. And we're not told exactly what the words are necessarily. We're not given the lyrics like we are in chapter 7 and in chapter 15. But I believe it's the same song. I think it's the same, the same stanzas. Although here it takes on this dimension that gives us insight, I believe, into the impact that the reality of this song has made in the lives of these who sing it. Let me explain what I mean there. It says that they sing this song that they have learned. Okay? And we will talk more about this. But that word there for those who have learned it, only those who are redeemed learn this song. And the, redur- the, the, the name there for learned is, is, is the word in Greek where we get the idea of, of learning about someone. It's not just facts. Okay? It's not just memorizing the lyrics to a song. It's knowing what that song is really about, knowing the one about whom that song was written. In, in Vine's little study of New Testament words, he, he describes this word as not simply the doctrine of Christ, but Christ himself. It's a process of not merely getting to know the person, but of so applying that knowledge as to walk differently from the rest of mankind. So this is not just a song that some group of singers come in and pick up and learn, and it means nothing to them. Those who learn this song are learning Christ. They have learned Jesus. And the lyrics that they sing, I believe, depict the very lives that they live, as we will see in these characteristics. Jesus, Jesus kind of spoke about this reality in John chapter 6. He said, It is written in the prophets, 
and they will all be taught by God. Listen to what he says next. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. It's the same word there learned. If we have learned from the father about Jesus, we are brought to Jesus. Everyone who learns from the father comes to me. So what we have here is this picture of God initiating this whole thing. In chapter 13, it was those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. He initiated it before the foundation of the world. And here he instructs, he instructs and reveals Christ. And those to whom Christ is revealed, well, they take on those characteristics, the characteristics of the redeemed. And there's this great distinction there in the way that these people have learned and who it is that they're following. Paul said in Ephesians chapter four, but this is not the way you have learned Christ. What is he talking about there? You, this is not the way you have learned Christ. He says that in chapter four and verse 20. Well, the difference is the distinction. And he describes that distinction. Listen to what he says in 17 through 24. I'll just read this. Now, I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So what the Gentiles, what those outside of Christ, outside of the covenant have learned is just futility. It's foolishness. There's all this heads filled with nothing that's going to accomplish anything. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So what is it that's different for those who have learned Christ? He says in verse 22, you have put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires. And you are renewed in the spirit of your minds so that you put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's a distinction. Not just between the one who deceives and the one who delivers in chapter 13 and chapter 14. But there's a distinction in the very lives of those who have been deceived and those who have been delivered. And that distinction is kind of laid out for us here. The first thing we see is they are delivered. Notice it says, this is, this is one of those verses that, oh boy. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Oh, my word, where are we going to take this? You know, what, what are we to say about this? Well, there are those who hold the position that this is talking about men who have never defiled themselves in any way and are virgins still and not been married. There are those who would hold to a view, and, and none of these, by the way, are in the majority, that, that men who are married but yet are, are chaste, they are married but yet they are still virgins. Well, the Bible would never support that view because biblical marriage and the sexual relationship within marriage, within marriage is never in the Bible equated with being defiled. In fact, it's just the opposite. The marriage bed is sacred, the writer of Hebrews said. So it, it's not either of those. I think, again, the context of Revelation, the context of this section, the context of what has happened in chapter 13 and what will happen in chapters later, give us a clear understanding of what this is referring to. This is not talking about literal 
virginity, about literally being chased physically within within or with outside of marriage, although the Bible is clear about what's called for there. The context here is about spiritual adultery, about spiritual purity. And let me let me explain why I believe that's what this is talking about. I think this is talking about those who are lovers of the world. As opposed to those who are lovers of Christ. In Revelation chapter 17, it says in verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and the wine of those... Uh, And the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. This is a picture of the world. Its affections, its attractions, and the adultery that God refers to for those who forsake him and pursue her. In chapter 18... We read, he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. Verse three, for those who have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, the kings of the earth who have committed immorality with her, the merchants of the earth who have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. This is the very charge that God had against Israel in the Old Testament. You have forsaken me and pursued the world. And it is spiritual adultery. Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? Referring to Israel. This faithless one. How she went on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought after she's done all this, will she return to me? But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw all the adulteries of the faithless one Israel. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. She too went and played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. So this picture in Jeremiah is the same picture we see in Ezekiel chapter 16, where they've just gone and pursued everything and everyone except God. The language is harsh because the sin is abominable. We need to recognize this is no small thing. Hosea chapter 5, 4 says the spirit of whoredom is within them and they know not the Lord. They came to Baal and consecrated themselves to a thing of shame, he says in chapter 9, and became detestable like the thing that they loved. That's what's going on here. And these who are redeemed are not like that. They are spiritually chaste. They are faithful to their covenant relationship with the one who has redeemed them. That's why Apostle Paul said in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, I feel a divine jealousy for you. I have betrothed you to one husband husband to present you a, a pure virgin to Christ. The redeemed are pure before the Lord. The world calls for our attention, church. It calls for our affection. 
It calls for us with a siren call to forsake Jesus and pursue it into spiritual adultery. But the redeemed endure. They stay faithful. They stay committed. They, they stay in that sacred relationship. They are morally and spiritually pure. They are faithful to Christ as their betrothed, as their husband. And that's the picture here. The redeemed are faithful. The redeemed also follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's that's what it says next about those. This picture of these complete number, I think, stand before the lamb and they follow him wherever he goes. It says there in verse four. And in the context of Revelation, what we've seen so far is they have followed the lamb into what? (laughs) Well, they followed the lamb into persecution. They followed the lamb when the world would say go a different route. They have followed the lamb in the face of governments that seek to silence them, in the face of religion that wants to oppose them, in the face of cultures that want to silence them and isolate them away from each other. They follow the lamb and they love him even when the dragon rises up with his beast and threatens to kill them. They follow the lamb because they love him more than they love their own lives. And that's a requirement for the disciple. It is not optional. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says in Matthew 16, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. John 12, he says the same thing. Whoever serves me must follow me. And these redeemed follow Christ wherever he goes. They follow him the way of the cross. And praise God, the whole point of Revelation is we follow him to glory. All right. That's where it ends up. They follow him. They're faithful to Christ. They follow Christ. And they are the first fruits for Christ. Notice what it says there. Again, they have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God. They are purchased, if you will. That's the whole idea behind redemption. They are purchased by God for God. First fruits. What does it mean when it calls us there, when it calls the redeemed of God the first fruits? Well, again, there's options here on what it means. In the Old Testament, sometimes the first fruit was just that. It was the first of more to come. And there are those who legitimately hold to the view and, and they're, they're, they're solid in their understanding. That's what the thing about Revelation. You can, you can have a good solid understanding of it and see parts of this very differently. There are those who see this, those who, those who see all of this unfolding in this, in this picture of, of what's going to come as far as the tribulation and all of that. Some see this as simply those who are being, those who are first brought to Christ and then what will follow is those who are saved through the rest of the tribulation. So this is indeed the first of more to come. And, and many would hold that view. Many also hold the view that this is not first fruits in the sense of more to come, but this is first fruits in the very best. It is brought before God and offered to him. And that's true in the Old Testament as well. Some say it's simply an offering to God of what belongs to him anyway, what he has, what he has brought. Jeremiah says in, in Jeremiah 2, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits. Of his harvest. So all of God's people are there called his first fruits. James in chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So again, this picture of first fruits, I think, is a picture of, of the very 
the very redeemed people of God being presented to God and to the Lamb as their own. It speaks of our value, church. It speaks of our value. It speaks of our worth. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. That's who you are. That's whose you are. And anything the world would tell you other than that, would, that would want to raise your value higher than that, it can't be any higher than what Jesus says it is, right? But the lie of the world, the lie of the dragon, the lie of the beast would cause you to not value that as you should. No. First fruits. Faithful to Christ, following Christ, first, first fruits for Christ. But then notice that there is no falsehood among the redeemed. The redeemed are people of truth. It says in their mouth, no lie was found. I think, again, the context between chapter 13, 14 and the rest of Revelation makes this pretty clear. you got the lie of the beast, those who have bought that lie and live out that lie, as opposed to those who have been redeemed by the one who is what? The way, the truth, and the life. And there is no falsehood in them. They are living people who follow, they are living the truth out and they follow the one who is the truth. As opposed to those who have bought in and and ascribed to the blasphemy of the beast and those who worship him. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, idolatry is equated with a lie. With a lie. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because Satan is a liar and he's a father of lies. And the father of liars. And so anything that would come from him all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 would be a lie in and of itself. Isaiah says that that those who buy into the ways of the world, and I might say into the ways of the beast, and who buy into their lies. He says we have made, they would say in, in Isaiah 28, 15, we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood, we have taken shelter. If your shelter and security and foundation is anything other than Jesus, you are sheltering up in a lie that will falter and fail. Isaiah chapter 44, in referring to idolaters, he feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is, is this not a lie in my right hand? Meaning, this idolater is holding in his hand his idol. And he's not able to say, is this just not a lie? Yes, it is a lie. Anything other than Jesus, anything other than his ways and his word, it's a lie. And if you're holding on to that, or trying to take a stand on that, it will falter and fail to your eternal ruin. Finally, the text says there, no lie was found, for they are blameless. The idea there, the word there, blameless, is what Peter refers to as without spot. It's that spotless, perfect, sacrificial animal. There's no spot or blemish in it. How in the world? How in the world can fallen sinners like you and me be categorized, described as blameless, faultless? Well, it ain't in us. It's not what we've done. It's in the one who has redeemed us. 
Ephesians chapter 1 begins with this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, without spot, perfectly righteous, chosen by him for that. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Verse 13, That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Paul's looking forward to that end that we see here in Revelation and being reminded of and reminding us that we are blameless in holiness because of what God has done for us. He's established us. Jude says in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. When I originally outlined this chapter, I had outlined this portion of that of the sermon, the work of God on behalf of his redeemed. Because that's, I think that's really what we see here. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world who is now standing has redeemed for himself. His own. Those who were marked out, it says, before the very foundation of the world. And he's then gone even further to carry out the work of that redemption in their lives so that the song that they sing characterizes the lives that they live. And that and that's how they're described here. That's how they're distinguished here. So it is the work of God on behalf of the redeemed. But listen, it is God who works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. We are to work out our salvation in the light of that reality. Right. So it is the work that God has done in us. And it is the work that we do in our walk with Christ because of our love for him. Is it what he does in us or what we do for him? Yes. Yes. And that's this picture here. The new song that they sing is exclusive and only the redeemed can learn it. When we come to faith in Christ today, just be reminded that when we come to faith, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit does this work in us as we walk with him and pursue him. That's this idea behind learning Behind not just learning facts, but knowing Christ himself. And so I think the primary application point that comes from this first portion of this is this understanding that we are redeemed. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you belong to him. Now, if you've not done that yet, I want you to think back for just a second back on that opening illustration about Shawshank. I want you to think for a second about in, in the reality of your heart, in, in, in the honesty that I believe the Holy Spirit would allow you to see yourself in the proper light, what do you see there? What do you see there? Gavin Ortland, in this article that I just briefly referred to in a minute, says, imagine that you're a man in a cellar. It's dark, he says. It's stuffy. Think about that Shawshank You know, that Shawshank solitary confinement. This man, Gavin says, has no clue what's on the outside, what the world outside is like. 
He's never seen redwood trees soaring into the sky. He's never heard a thundering cascading waterfall. He's never seen the night sky lit up with stars. He knows nothing of this. But he can look up and through a little hole in a window, he can see light pouring in and say there must be something more. If you're outside of Christ today, I just want to tell you there is something more. All right. The top 40 songs of this world will not build up your heart and they will not change you as a person. It's the blood of the Lamb that pours over us by this miracle of salvation. And, and, and even that prompting of the heart through the Holy Spirit, this is, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more. And there is. And that's what this song in Revelation 14 points us to. Red said, it's like they were singing something that's so beautiful you can't express it in words and your heart aches for it. Does your heart ache this morning for more? Well, the only way that ache will be remedied is in Jesus. And I invite you to come to Him. I invite you to come to the one who loves you enough to die for you. And I urge you to do that before the one who loves you comes to judge you. Which we will see in the rest of this chapter. It is fearsome. I wish it wasn't there. I wish, I wish the rest of this chapter wasn't there. I, I'm not even sure how I'm going to preach it. But it is there. And it is awful. And it is eternal. And is fear a valid factor for salvation? You better believe it. If you will come to Jesus and walk with Him and love Him as He walks with you and loves you and gives you a new song to sing. Let's pray. Father, we pray You'd continue to do the work of sanctification in Your church among us, Lord, who are Yours. Remind us, God, of the attraction of the world and, Lord, may our hearts yearn to be faithful to You. Father, remind us, I pray, of where we have fallen short and just how much you love us and are still willing and do offer us forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. Father, grant to your church repentance and confession that we might be free from that condemnation, that we might be free from that guilt, Lord. Thank you that you tell us that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. So, Father, help us walk in the reality of that light of your forgiveness. You have translated us, transported us, taken us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. Lord, let us walk in the light of that reality. And Father, I do pray if there's someone here today that has never trusted in Christ, that Father, they would, by your work, by your grace, confess their sin, turn to Jesus, come to him. Father, I pray that. We thank you for the song that is ours to sing because of Jesus. And may we sing it and live it. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.